Hi, my name is Lisa. And the last thing I prayed for was for a sense of calm that I wouldn't let the overwhelm be my story this week. Okay, um, you know what I was just singing actually before we hopped on? Have you ever seen Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dream Code? I know I talk about it all the time, but have you seen it? Absolutely not. Oh. That's yeah. about Joseph from the Bible though, right? The, the Torah. one and only. What was his last name? Did anyone have last names in the Bible? The I think Torah? his last name was Dreamcoat. <laughs> <laughs> I actually, that's actually a great question. Did they have last names? They must actually... They probably didn't. I want to know when they invented last names. There must have been a point where there were so many Josephs, Marys. I feel like it certainly isn't a European thing to invent last names. It's It must be Asian, no? Well, yeah, there's different... Uh, Dynasties based by their last name and their heritage, so... And, yeah. like, different ways of having a last name. Like, I think yeah. in Iceland, it's whatever your father's name is and then son. So, like, if you're father's name is Christian, then your last name is Christensen. But like, oh. I think if you're a woman, you have a different last name. And in some countries, they put your last name first. It's mm -hmm. something we should look into. I'm curious. And then if you are Mexican, you have 600 last names. <laughs> and Spanish. Most, most Spanish or Hispanics have like a thousand names. You know who I think had the first last name? Who? Jesus. Jesus Christ. I don't think he had the first last name. <laughs> I don't know. He was a trailblazer, so I wouldn't put it past him. Um, I mean, I wouldn't put it past him necessarily either, but what was King Henry's last name? The eighth? Well, I feel like royals <laughs> don't really have last names either because they don't need them because they have a title. But in they front do of them. have last names. We just well, don't know I them. know. Okay. For, I don't know why I know this, but Meghan and Harry's son, his last name is like Mountbatten Windsor or something. So that must yeah. be their last name. I think it's like maybe whatever the name of the castle is, is your last name? And that's I something think, I truly pull out of my I think they named the ass. castle after the last name. I don't think they named mm. their last name after the mm. castle. I'll have to look into that. P lots of plot holes here. Anyway, um, what was your live, laugh, lahayim? I feel like it was a weird week. It was a weird week. I was in New York. I'm back in LA. Hello to Los Angeles. Um, so I guess like classic JC, but my live, laugh, lahayim is that I didn't get into a plane crash and that I survived. So... That's a good I one. could cheers to that. Y'all know that I did my little prayers before and they worked. So help me God. The power of prayer. My live laugh lahayim is that I was in Arizona last week as loyal followers and listeners know. And there it's monsoon season in Arizona and there was an epic storm and I loved it. I felt alive. We're out of the drought, according to my mom and literally no one else. <laughs> and, <laughs> and the one was, rain and you're out of the drought. <laughs> well, she's like, yeah, last week it rained. There was a huge storm when we're not in the drought. And I'm like, really? Because I heard Lake Mead is at its lowest level ever. But okay. Hilarious. I don't know where the, the truth lies somewhere in the middle. But it was really wonderful. I love a summer storm. I also love a summer storm. In other news, and this neck of the woods that was a weather joke for you al roker fans we had lisa <laughs> yuboa on our podcast this week and she was really knowledgeable about christianity something that we have a lot to learn about and really enlightening she preached do you have anything to say jc i just i want you guys to listen for yourselves she's a one-liner queen yeah. and we were so lucky to get her on the pod um enjoy 
enjoy. I don't. Why did I need to say that? You said it. Like you always copy me. Hey there, we're JC and this is Jessica. Hello. Hi, hi. And this is Pray For Us, a podcast about practicing ancient religions in the modern day. We're talking about how we observe Judaism and other religions when it comes to holidays, relationships, food, and, well, everything in between. Today, we're talking to Reverend Lisa Yaboa. Lisa is the lead pastor at Southern... Oh, fuck. Let me start that over. Lisa is the lead, <laughs> Lisa is the lead pastor at Southeast Raleigh... Tem- oh, Jesus, fuck. <laughs> Lisa that would be a good name is, for a church. <laughs> well, I don't even know what I said, guys. It's a Monday morning. Let's get after it. Okay. Lisa is the lead pastor at Southeast Raleigh Table in North Carolina. Welcome to the podcast, Lisa. Welcome. Yay, thank you guys so much for having me. Thanks for being We're here. Nice to have you. Where are you currently and where are you from? Okay. Mm-hmm. I okay. love to ask you. I'll tell you where I'm uh, currently. So I okay. live in Raleigh, North Carolina. I live in what is considered the southeast um, part of Raleigh, just kind of outside of downtown, which is where my church community is also uh, located, or the brick and mortar is located. But I claim Somerville, South Carolina as my hometown. Um, I, I always say that if you're from South Carolina, it's South Carolina is like a rash. Whether you like it or not, it's like on you. And so <laughs> I claim Somerville, South Carolina as my hometown. It's about 25 minutes inland of Charleston. But I was actually born in Nashville, Tennessee. Oh. And my parents immigrated from Ghana, West Africa. So I was the first person in my family born on American soil in, in Nashville. But I say that I'm from South Carolina. Do you That's have a- long and short. <laughs> do you have any siblings? <laughs> I do. I have an older half brother and then I have a younger brother. My younger brother lives in the area, which is lovely. That's great. I love yeah. that. I will say people from South Carolina are obsessed with South Carolina. (laughs) I mean, it's incredible. I went to Charleston, I guess, like right before the pandemic. And I don't even think I spent enough time there. I like couldn't get enough. I probably gained 16 pounds in one weekend. (laughs) It was the most incredible. I loved it. South Carolina is interesting. um, You know, I sometimes I jokingly say when I'm like, sharing my bio out loud that South Carolina is like its own little country. Like, you know, I'm not from a state, I'm from a little country. And honestly, it's like two degrees of separation for any person who lives in South Carolina. So South South Carolinians, for good or for bad, ride hard for their state, Mm -hmm. which can be uber problematic at times or can be very endearing depending on how they ride hard for the state. I really want to go. It's been on my list. I've seen the like really like charming, colorful buildings like in pictures. And I was like, wow, I I need to see those for myself. But I know there's more to South Carolina. (laughs) There's more to it. Everything about, I mean, Charleston in particular is like a Netflix special just waiting to happen. I mean, it's fraught with drama mm-hmm. and yeah, yeah, like a Netflix. If Netflix in Lifetime had a baby, that it would be Charleston. Because <laughs> there's but like a lot it's of always a lot going on mythology around it too, and like haunted, like you know, theories and stories. And there's a lot of like quote unquote haunted buildings and stuff like that. I did a I did a ghost tour in Charleston. No big <laughs> it's deal. an interesting place. Can you tell us a little bit about Southeast Rally Table and also Edenton Street United Methodist Church? Because I think. That's like, is that the larger church that you work for? Yes, it's it's um, it's a, a beautifully complex relationship. So in 2009, I was one of the pastors at the Edenton Street United Methodist Church. Um, Edenton Street is um, over 200 years old. I think, uh, goodness, it might be celebrating its 210th anniversary, maybe in the upcoming year. I can't remember. 
But while I was there, we celebrated our 200th anniversary. I mean, a stayed kind of downtown mainline Protestant church in Raleigh. And early on during my time on staff there, we began to like dream and vision. One of the questions we asked ourselves was, um, what's a God-sized vision for Edenton Street as opposed to what do the people of Edenton Street want? Which I think is a beautiful question to ask because then you have a holy imagination for what the church can be, yada, yada, yada. <laughs> In that like visioning process, we decided um, there are people who will never come to this church, um, whether by perception or the ways in which we do life here is just not going to be a place that feels compelling. What could it look like to have other iterations that really are contextualized for our community? And a lot of people who go to Edenton Street don't live in the like downtown area. They actually live like in certain suburban parts of Raleigh and they drive in, which is very, you know, common in the United States for a lot of downtown churches. But our downtown neighbors, downtown Raleigh is like <clears throat> booming. In fact, I think just last week we were listed number two, the Raleigh-Durham-Chapel Hill area as a number two place to live. All these folks from California and New York during the pandemic were like, ah, we want space and horses. Yeah. And we're moving to Raleigh. And like, Everyone wants a yard. Prices. Everyone wants a yard. So like, you know, our the real estate market in Raleigh is a hot, crazy situation, but I digress. So we said, oh, you know, our actual downtown neighbors and folks who live like downtown adjacent within the one to two mile radius, like these are the folks that we would love to see. And so Edenton Street basically like birthed two new communities, church communities that uh, contextualized for our neighbors. And so one of those church communities, a lot of artists and creatives and foodies. So it's like the food corridor. And so they really think about like supporting local bartenders and local restaurants and their space actually looks a little bit like an art gallery. And wow. I wanted to, I wanted to curate kind of Southeast Raleigh. Southeast Raleigh has uh, many of the staid historically black um, neighborhoods, two historically black colleges and universities are in kind of border parts of like Southeast Raleigh. I coming from like the Charleston area, I love stories. I love um, how uh, black and brown people in particular are connected to land and space and place in some ways differently than sometimes our white counterparts. That's not to say, you know, stories don't matter to other communities, but just what the uh, those matriarchs and patriarchs, how they like poured into and how to help all of Raleigh love all of Raleigh. Because it's very easy for people to say Raleigh and then like Southeast Raleigh, like mm. it's some- um, It's very divided. Not even divided geographically, but so socio-geographically. It's yeah. kind of like you can be driving down a street and once you kind of move from like downtown to the Southern parts, it's almost as though people kind of become blind to the things around them simply because of the ways in which they orient themselves in, in our city. And, I, and my thing is if you love Raleigh, you got to love all of Raleigh, which means you got to rep hard for Southeast Raleigh as well. Anyway, that's how um, the Southeast Raleigh table was born, was basically I was kind of like commissioned, sent out to um, help kind of create a new community. That's so smart. It's a fun church, you know, um, trying to have light and life in, in Southeast Raleigh, but not in a way that's like transactional because people love to say, oh, you're doing like a mission. And I'm always like, Stop right there. <laughs> this is not me, the Harriet Tubman going into like a neighbor, you know, to these neighborhoods. Um, also to my my um, church community is still it's predominantly white. But we tell people we decenter whiteness and I won't go into the whole long idea about whiteness as a construct. We de decenter whiteness and we make decisions based off of what makes sense for our community, not who are the people who are in the pews. Because if we do that, 
will tend to like um, default to the way the U.S. oftentimes right. centers yeah. whiteness, which can be really, I'm going to use the word problematic 925 that's, times. That's okay. It can be very problematic. I mean, it's very, very problematic. Do you have any examples of decisions that you have made that were, uh, you know, on the contrary from what the U.S. has pushed on us? Like, do you have, yeah, any yeah. stories? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So one of my, one of my, um, she's a friend of mine, but she's also one of my parishioners, which is also very fun when the people you love, you know, you have lots of dual relationships, but she's one of my congregants. She was kind of over our um, staff parish relations team, which is kind of like our HR team at church. And one of the things we really wanted to fight up against is not having hierarchical models for leadership in our church community. And we decided on a collaborative model instead, which a collaborative model probably will feel more native and 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 uh, organic to communities of color. And I want to be care. I don't want to ever overgeneralize, but this idea like of um, you know doing things as a community, doing things as a collective. Family lines are blurred not because they're blurry, but because this particular mother is feeding these these cousins and nephews and nieces and as opposed to like everything's so delineated mm -hmm. this is my family this is your family this is my land this is your land it's kind of like no and, and our church leadership is kind of the compound like no we we all have lots of different giftings and even if you don't have a particular title that doesn't mean you don't have a particular gift and so which is so different than you know everything robert rules of order um we we say that we live with a lot of high trust with each other versus like everything being top down like if Lisa didn't say yes, then we don't do it. It's kind of like, mm. no, I, I actually believe that lots of us have great discernment skills. So that would be one of the, the things. When we first like kind of like moved into the neighborhood, instead of doing things like backpack buddies or feeding programs or like a food pantry, which belies this transactional relationship, a fiduciary, yeah. like mm -hmm. I've got something to give to you. We're like, uh-uh. What we will do is we'll go to St. Augustine's, which is one of the historically black colleges. We'll show up at homecoming with a DJ, great food, and we're going to enjoy ourselves. And mm -hmm. so um, even though, you know, many of my white members had never been to uh, Black HBCUs homecoming, which hopefully their lives were converted and changed. Um, <laughs> like sometimes, sometimes even relationships, my job is to wholly disrupt even how people have had relationships with each other. Because if all you've ever known is like, I stand on one side of a table and I give somebody something, that's not how friendships really are developed. But like twerking and doing the stanky leg, maybe, <laughs> while you're eating a piece of and macaroni and cheese. Solid that foundation. Might, <laughs> that might be the way, the way to do it. So some of it is like, just really being thoughtful about even how we, um, how I help people take up space, how I take up space so that it's not the, look at this church who's coming, you know, like how the theology of being nice, which <laughs> can be incredibly dangerous. Yeah. That's like, JC, we were talking about that last week when we were in our, one of our intros, we were talking about how we change the way that we speak when we're asking for something where we'll be like, I do this where I'll be like, um, excuse me, I was just wondering. <laughs> like, that's not that's like, that is not your voice. Like, yeah, why, like, why, did I, <laughs> why am I becoming a six month old all of a sudden? Yeah. <laughs> but it's not, it's, I mean, it comes from a good place, but it's not always like that authentic or it and certainly like, I feel uncomfortable. Like when I talk like that, I'm like, who am I? Why am I doing that? <laughs> yeah. I just, I find that, I mean, it's so important and so interesting how doing a good deed, if it's super transactional mm -hmm. or Ugh. super 
one-sided uh, or so clear that, you know, you're doing it just to save face for your community or mm-hmm, just doing mm-hmm. good to do good. It doesn't feel as good as when you actually participate and uh, see yourself as the same level as the people that you're trying to help and treat them yep. like actual human beings. Like not to throw my temple under the bus, but like <laughs> growing up, I remember my, my, <laughs> my, um, congregation at temple i did not go but they went to do like a i don't i don't even know if it was like a food drive or it was like a it was a feed the unhoused people in like somewhere Mm -hmm. in the city in new york city and i remember a a couple of my friends who did it they came back and they were like that actually felt really gross like Mm. we were handing out stuff and they didn't even seem to like what we had and they didn't like that we put up like signs i was like yeah i don't blame them for not liking yep. that. Yeah. It doesn't, well, it feels icky a little bit. So, and, and, and the thing about it is that we can course correct. It's moving from the two and four. I'm doing something to you or for you. And then, and, and thinking about what does it look like to do things with each other? So I'm going to resurrect your, your temple from under the bus. One, some of my <laughs> favorite, you. literally some of my favorite images and why I love um, actually engaging many of the rabbis in my community is because um, it was uh, oftentimes folks within the Jewish community who stood literally side by side with who, and I'm not going to say with civil rights activists, they were civil rights activists, drawing on the Exodus stories and narratives and like having kind of that that similarity. But it's because we were doing things with each other yeah. versus two or four. There's something about as soon as as soon as I see someone as like the object of like the recipient of my yeah whatever. Mm-hmm. And I don't think to myself and I mean, even we have to be very careful about, you know, I learned I got more out of it than they probably got from me because even that can be sometimes gross, mm-hmm. but this idea of like, I want people to come into my community and instead of automatically starting with the deficits, start with like Ella Baker with SNCC, one of the greatest, you know, freedom writers, you know, went to Shaw University right around the corner. When you're, when you're in Southeast Raleigh, you need to know that W.E.B. Du Bois stayed at a house three blocks away from where I live in Southeast Raleigh. Marian Anderson, one of the greatest opera, black opera singers stayed in a house three blocks away. Lemuel Delaney, you know, uh, th- th- these great, like these great figures right here. Here, but so many folks don't know like okay this is just as important as like the brown merriman house that's people love to have weddings in something about like your perspective shifting where we don't automatically say so what's the deficit that i'm going to somehow like fill the gap versus maybe there is a different kind of seeing i need to have when i'm in a place so even when you're in under uh, historically underserved communities, maybe how families show up for each other or the fact that people survive through so many cultural shifts. Like, I just think we tend to not tell stories really well. That is not what you were trying to get me to talk about, but I totally get it. I just wanted to get the temple from up under the bus. We're here to talk about whatever you want to talk about. Wherever the conversation goes, we are absolutely here for it. Anyway. I did want to ask, because you brought up missionaries or like if this is a mission earlier (laughs) what is like your stance on that or what is the church's stance on that because I think traditionally when we think or when I think of missionaries I think of Mormon missionaries and Mm -hmm. sort of trying to like convert as many people as possible to Mm -hmm. grow your numbers my personal feeling about missionaries is that I think that missionaries and, and whatever sense of the word we understand them that there's a place for them Mm-hmm. Comma and also depends on what and, uh, and on what missionaries feel called to do. I think what's been so problematic, see, 
number five, <laughs> four, five. <laughs> what's been so problematic about the way oftentimes missionaries have like gone out in the world is that it's sometimes it comes with a little bit of colonialism like who i am and what i do is just over and against what you do and i'm going to get you to be more like me so sometimes mission missionary ventures actually was just about trying to make everyone into mini me's and doing it in some very like violent ways now i love my faith and i do think there's something life-giving about my faith i love your faith i think there's something very life-giving about your faith i love other faith traditions and i think there are things that are very life-giving about it i think if we come with a like a posture that's invitational and we make our faith tangible so like they're they're united methodist missionaries around the world oftentimes what they do is they they're in places where there might be great need like maternal health and they meet those particular needs and that is in their way an extension of how like Christ serves versus if I can get them to believe what I believe, then they become worthy of receiving something, other services um, right. from me. And, and I think sometimes um, previous missionary ventures almost seems to be very much like, if you do what I, if you become who I need you to become, then you'll, then you get the, you get the product. So I would even say like, even among our friends, when we think about like, I love my faith, I really do love my faith, but I don't want ever my friends to think the only reason I want them to be my friend is so that I can like turn them into a good Christian. Mm -hmm. Now, what if, what if I lived a compelling life and, um, and a life-giving life and they're like, God, there's just the way that Lisa like shows up in the world that feels really beautiful. I, who knows? Maybe they may yoke themselves to the faith because they see my faith lived out as opposed to me trying to, um, like, you know, how in like mafia movies, you slide a piece of paper across the table, mm -hmm. you know? <laughs> anyway, yeah, I, I, I don't know if that answers your question, but. No, it totally does. That yeah. makes a lot of sense. And your community is Methodist, correct? It's Methodist. Yeah, we're connected so, to the Methodist church. <laughs> this might be a super loaded question, but what are like the core differences um, between being a Methodist and let's say like being a I, I say Catholicism only because I feel like we're the most familiar with Catholicism. Mm -hmm. Yep, 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 yep. Yeah. Um, so we could start there. <laughs> yeah, um, that would be like a, a 30, well, it'd actually be a whole um, 500 years worth of conversation. But of course, um, <laughs> you know, we'll do a spinoff. In, in a lot of ways, like, um, you know, sometimes it's the, way, the ways in which we think about some of our embodied practices, like our, my Catholic brothers and sisters have a particular view around communion, the Lord's table. Uh, it's a little different than the Methodist. The Methodist, we have a little bit of a different way of thinking about the Lord's Supper than our Baptist counterparts. That's a little bit different than our Episcopalian counterparts who have more similarities with some of our Catholic counterparts. You know, I think ultimately you probably, I'm, I'm, and, I, and I don't say this to be cliche, I feel like what's been lost is like, there is just so much more overlap, way more overlap. Because I think, and especially in the American context, we have a really bad way of holding nuance with identity. We tend to think in po like in binaries in the in the U.S. It's for it's sure. Actually kind of, it's kind of, it's actually what has made the machine work is mm -hmm. not to is for us not to ever be okay with nuance because as soon as we become okay with nuance, we start to ask better questions. As soon as we start to ask better questions, we start to ask people to show up better for us mm -hmm. as opposed to like when it's this or that. How we think about Jesus, you know. Um, so many of those things are very, very similar. I think some of our practices, kumsi kumsa, as my French friends would say, it's a little <laughs> bit different, like this, like that. 
but there's probably a lot more overlap, even within the Jewish tradition. Yeah, I'm, 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 yeah, like, I'm sure I'm there's pulling stuff out that I'm like, you know, the Barakos prayers, friends, let's try this, you know, so. It's all sort of like different versions of the same stories, I think. But we just like to categorize things like as humans, like I think that's how our brains work. But I'm also yeah. not a, a scientist or a psychologist, so <laughs> I don't <laughs> yeah. really know. Yeah. Can you tell us a little bit about how you got into this work and like what made you want to decide to be a reverend? Like, were you like seven years old and you were like, I know exactly what I want to be when I grow up or was it not like yeah. that? No, no. I mean, yeah, I, I, I joke about, like, oh, I was not the seventh grader who was like, oh my gosh, you know, with my asymmetric hairstyle, I'm wearing <laughs> kids and uh, five pairs of socks. I was not the one saying, oh my gosh, when I grew up, I you know, want to be a pastor. My dad's a pastor. And um, and it's not that I didn't want to be a pastor because my dad's a pastor, but there are some reasons why I was like, yeah, this gig is not, is not for me. It's a long story, but I'll just shorten it by saying, you know, I've always had a love of the church. Um, I, I am one of those people who um, I think I could see the mystery of it all, very much kind of enamored by enamored by faith and the ways that we like, I am a very bodily person. Like I move a lot. Mm-hmm. And there, there are a lot of things about church traditions when they're un, when they're not like held hostage, it's very embodied. And I love it. It's very fleshy. And I, and I think it just helped me to like navigate the world as a, as a young person. So I've always had a love affair um, with faith and with the church, even post going off to seminary. Cause I didn't go to seminary to be a pastor. I was thinking I was going to do something with faith and politics, just realizing there's something really beautiful about when people gather and the power of when people gather me wanting to like save, deliver the church from the crazy, like realizing that there's a way that it doesn't have to just be all, you know, yes, there are a lot of oppressive systems that the church can participate. Well, actually that any faith can participate in. Yeah. And, and I just am not one of those people who's like, well, I guess that's just it. The people who get the microphone who are really loud and who say problematic stuff, see, yeah, they, they're the mm-hmm. ones who are going to get to just like um, drive this narrative. It's like, no, we do actually have something really beautiful. Um, who will be the protectors of the beauty? Now, again, I didn't have like a day where I was like, I want to be a protector of the beauty. (laughs) But I think my journey kind of got me there. Um, And a lot of it was like my first year actually serving as a pastor um, in a formal capacity. The person who invited me into that space just said, do it for a year. If you think you won't do harm, if you think you'll do all the good you can, and if you think this will not injure your relationship with God or that you won't injure other people's relationship with God, give it a year. And I always say that that's the year that ministry or pastoral identity claimed me even when I was too afraid to claim it. Can you explain to us what the difference between a pastor, a preacher, and a reverend is? Because I because we're so ignorant confused. and I'm yeah. sure there's a lot of other ignorant Jews listening. So yeah. No, yeah. So a reverend is like the form is a formal title. Typically if you've had like formal education and um, ordination within like a some type of whatever. So a father or a priest, like there's typically like that that's like more formal designate the formal designation now a pastor a pastor is someone who offers up any kind of like pastoral ministerial gifting so you could be a pastor of children's ministry or let's say i didn't have necessarily formal training i could still say i'm pastor lisa which the kids in my church call me pastor lisa they don't call me reverend lisa yaboa but Mm -hmm. like on formal documentation they would put reverend it's like the formal the more formal title that's like connected to like credentialing pastor is more of like connected to function but mm-hmm. doesn't necessarily always have to be connected to um, credentialing. Preacher would be what you do. Like a, I think preachers probably, I need to do some research on this. I wouldn't be surprised if it came out of 
more of the Southern context because one of the main the main functions that pastors did was the preaching moment right. that you just kind of called a person like, you know, uh, a, a preacher. But a preacher is like a preacher preaches. So you don't necessarily... A preacher preaches. You don't have to have like a formal education or anything no, in order no. to do that. Okay. No. Gotcha. Yeah. And then the seminary, yeah. is that sort of like church college? Is that... it's like yeah seminary is like yeah it is like church college i guess it is but the interesting thing about seminary is that i have friends who are lawyers who are doctors um who are historians who are um who are in public health who who also went to seminary so in many ways it's kind of like they were just getting theological training um and sometimes theological training helps you in the church um sometimes theological training helps you in other aspects of um, of life, so how many yeah. years is like a proper seminary program? Uh, three years, and then oh, wow. some. Some church traditions then still invite you to do some more training after the fact. I did not have to do <laughs> three years. I was in and I was out. You were good. You knew. You yeah, knew everything. I was, I was like, crushed seminary. Period. Period. I know it. Can you explain what a typical day in the life is of a pastor? I don't know if there even is a typical day, but the best yeah. to, to the best of your ability. Uh, oh, so I'm going to just start off with the caveat. I think a typical day for a pastor depends on the scope, nature of the church or community that they shepherd. Because a pastor in um, in the Chiapas probably has a day that's very different than than what my day might look like. But for me. My day probably looks a lot like the day of like a typical entrepreneur and that um, I spend a, a part of my day like kind of dreaming and visioning and vision casting. Like this morning, I had a staff meeting with my team because we were really going back and forth about does it make sense for us to to return and relaunch indoor worship? And so what are the complexities based off of like who we say we want to be and how we want to be congruent in our community? Are there some ways that we can like rethink what the worship experience looks like and so we spend an hour and a half kind of talking through that and so that's me problem solving i mean i spent a part of my week thinking about the reflection that i'm going to do and this pandemic has definitely stretched my gifts like a lot of things i'm always like what makes sense in a pandemic shaped world so so all my work i'm always trying to filter it through through that some of it is a little bit of communications like oh you know I need to get on Canva and create a thing for Instagram. (laughs) We need to get like a really great photographer to come do this particular thing. I also did a funeral, a graveside service on Saturday. So um, pastoral care, like, you know, checking in on folks. We've had um, a good number of folks to have some interesting diagnoses. I think just the way in which the pandemic, not COVID, but the pandemic is settling into people's bodies. Stuff is just happening. I do premarital counseling with couples. I don't, I won't call it straight up counseling, but it feels a little more like life coaching, like just sitting with people and helping them to ask good questions if they're going through like a stuck season in life or trying to think about, do they want to leave a job or stay in a job? My days do have an order to them based off of like what the week holds, based off of what the season holds. There are a lot of pastors who are bivocational where like their work is very much Sunday centric. Like, you know, I just got to preach on a Sunday and visit the sick because I also have to sell cars. My life is not like that. You know, oh. I, I can be thinking about like property acquisition. And if we did have a property, how would we want to, you know, how could that property be used to have like to be beautifully disarming space? So, you know, I have a little more margin to do some of that kind of that kind of work. I love connecting my work with what's happening in our community. So I call myself, I jokingly call myself like the parish priest and ambassador for the 
the North Hills Lululemon store. I mean, you know, like people, <laughs> every time they walk into the store and they see my picture, they're like, like isn't she a pastor? I'm like, ah, who wears, you know, great Lululemon bras. I mean, so for me, it's also too like, how do I just show up for my community and my neighborhood and sprinkle joy wherever I go? Sprinkle joy. Since you just mentioned it, are you an athlete? Like, do you have a particular like sport or thing that you really like that got you that ambassadorship? Um, after watching the Olympics, I think I want to be a swimmer and a runner, but that's neither here nor there. I've always been like athletic. I was like cheered when I was in high school. And Me too. In college. Yay! I cheered in middle school. No, goodbye. That counts. That counts. It counts. Don't let anybody take that away from you. No stunts. Um, Doesn't count. But now I do CrossFit. It's like my the stuff that I that I do now. I'm not a great. I'm not great at it. That's my joke in the CrossFit gym. Is like I'm not really great, y'all, but I show up. (laughs) I show up and I have all the equipment. That's the hardest part. But it's it's important for me to move. Like it's it's uh, especially in the pandemic. It was my way of like literally shaking off the trauma me too yeah. i went through like waves of needing to move and then needing to not move yeah uh-huh. <laughs> i would have yeah. like 60 days of like i have to move every day that's and right followed by like 20 days of like i actually just need to like care for be myself still. and just be yes. really lazy <laughs> yes yes i went but it was never of- like in between it was like all or nothing eating pints of ice cream after like workouts. I'm like, ah, I'm going to work out and then I'm going to eat some ice cream. Oh, see, that's a balance. proper balance. Yeah. yeah. Do you get any days off? I mean, I guess legally you would have to, right? <laughs> <laughs> when you guys are like this, like, uh, uh, we're uncovering we're some kind of like trafficking ring for the pastors. Like, they, don't, they don't get to work. I typically try to take at least one day that is just like totally, again, not appropriating, but draw on, I think the rich tradition of Sabbath taking, mm-hmm. um, and um, in fact, last month, I invited my whole church community to create what they call a rule of life and to start first with incorporating rest practices. And so, mm-hmm. um, and, and it was probably one of the most viewed of our services and probably the one that people shared the most with other people. We always say like, you know, we want to work from our rest, not work to rest. Uh, this might be getting into muddy waters, but... Get into it! So, <laughs> so one of the things that I don't understand about Judaism in particular is if there's if we're supposed to be resting on the Sabbath and and you know not using cars and all uh-huh. of that which obviously Jessica and I are not Orthodox uh-huh. um, not even uh-huh. conservative but uh-huh. wh- then why why put in all the effort to go to services on that day why walk eight miles to get uh-huh. to the synagogue like that's also work is it not uh-huh. <laughs> okay first of all that's one whatever work. anyone adds a is it not and you might as well say pray tell is that not <laughs> yeah and you know i mean and i won't go i because I, I think we should actually i think that's a really great question and I do think we need to have we need to push back against. So one of the things I said to my community, I said, "Listen, when I was growing up, Sundays, uh, um, Sundays in the South, in particular, we we would call that our Sabbath. Like we would get everything right. ready on a Saturday, so that on Sunday, you know, the meal was already prepared when you got home, and yada yada yada. We didn't quite lean into it the way um, our uh, Jewish neighbors would. It was also like you weren't allowed to listen to secular music, and you shouldn't like play cards. And oh God, if you even looked slightly happy that day, like you wanted to dance, it's kind of like ah, 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 it's the Sabbath." And I remember thinking, well, now Sabbath just feels really constrictive and like I yeah. can't even be free. Sabbath is like for creation and recreation. So I, I said to my community, if any of you have come out of church traditions where when you heard 
the word like Sabbath, you just automatically thought, I'm going to have to sit here and look very sourpuss. But I guess having a Zen moment with the Lord, I said, I want you to first start with what are some of the obstacles that you have in that mindset around what it means to take a day of rest? And I want you to, to set free. I want you to liberate your idea of rest from the laws. I love Start that. there. That's so, what it should be. Mm-hmm. That's the, what it should be. The Sabbath should be, a, yeah, to take it to take a day to do what you, you feel yes. you need to do. Luxuriate. Yeah. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, now here's where, the, here's where I would say, here's where I, and, um, so everything with my life is comma, and, <laughs> and I kind of get why sometimes the legal part, you know, legalism comes in and that like, so what does it look like when I take a day of rest, but I have to then cause somebody else to labor? And I, and I think that's what we were trying, what, what some of those laws were trying to keep. It, it was almost like to free everyone up to be able to somehow enjoy rest. I think now though, in our like modern day context, there are new ways that we can like answer those problems. Like how can I pay people equitably so that anybody who needs to take a day off can take a day off and they don't have to work all the time so that we're not like asking people to labor in ways that just isn't fair versus I just won't get my nails done on a Sunday and potentially put a now a business out of, you know, someone out of business. Mm-hmm. It's tricky. It, it is, is tricky. tricky. Also, like when Shabbat was invented and when people first started going to church, like that was a very different time. Now we live in a really modern, complex society and those old rules don't necessarily apply to the day and age or don't work. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I think ultimately, I sometimes I say, what's the brass tax? I think ultimately at the end of the day, hold on, it's the fourth commandment. The fourth commandment is to take Sabbath. It is for us to not enslave ourselves. Like, I'm not going to let my iPhone enslave me. I'm not going to let my calendar enslave me because rest was a way in which you delineated those who were who were enslaved and those who were free when they in, in Egypt. And so God's like, I don't want you to slave. I don't want you to enslave yourself. So you need to take them. So let's get to the brass tax and the brass tax is like, there are a lot of things that will, that can enslave us. Um, yeah. Even this mindset mm-hmm. of like, I can't take a vacation or when I go on vacation, I still need to be checking my emails or like I can't even take three hours off because I need it. Like I'm just, I literally have just gotten, I'm more fatigued during this pandemic. And you start to lie to yourself, well then you start to become your own Pharaoh. Mm-hmm. And my thing is like, I will not be my own Pharaoh. I, I love that phrase. Oh my God. I'm, I need to I'm put that on a my own Pharaoh. Remind myself of that every morning. Especially <laughs> like for Jessica and I working in Hollywood for, you know, demanding folks sometimes yeah. it's it's so hard to avoid yeah. that pharaoh that trap analogy yeah. something you talk about a lot is you're a first generation american and you, there's this mm-hmm. concept of being culturally homeless can you explain mm-hmm. what that means did you make that up uh no not in the feeling but the yes as in the i guess the term like okay myself culturally, yeah yeah the running joke among my friends is like oh i'm the you know the queen of the one-liners like don't be your own pharaoh i mean like i forever <laughs> yeah. have like a, like you a, need a line of t-shirts hashtag. and mugs yeah. for sure one-liners <laughs> uh, actually i'm thinking about it's like oh you know i really do one-liners are my are my thing like i need church to, like, merch the, yeah. just i need to have a one-liners um, or like a twitter but, account or something <laughs> but, oh, actually <laughs> i'm about write to see I am going to write that down. So, you know, I, I feel like, um, you know, my parents are from Donna, West Africa. So uh, I'm from the African diaspora. I grew up in Charleston, South Carolina, one of the great, greatest slave um, ports in the, the colonies, uh, what is now the United States of America, but living among uh, predominantly Black communities with people who literally look like me because they actually were imported from 
my country, but I just know where I'm, I know my, where I'm from versus folks who are like, you know, I've been now disconnected from my ancestors for gender, for generations, but my mother can walk down the streets of Charleston and can say, oh, that person looks Eve. And that, I mean, she can just literally sense like where they're probably from if they were still living in Ghana or Nigeria or Benin um, or yeah. Togo. And so um, here I am, this, you know, first gen Ghanaian um, American in a place where people literally look like me who have, cut, you know, enslaved in South Carolina, who have practices and eat food that are very West African. And uh, and sometimes I didn't feel like I was necessarily, like like I fully understood my blackness within the American context, like sometimes feeling um, a little disconnected. In my academic life, basically navigated predominantly white space. Like it just, I was always navigating predominant white space. And that has been kind of true for, into my, into my adulthood. And in some ways, People trying to make me the exception to the rule, which is very, 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 also very problematic when you like exceptionalize people from other communities. Like, oh, but you're not like the others, mm-hmm. comma. Very, very problematic. But people would always love to exceptionalize me. All this code switching you have to do as a as a black female who's in predominantly white space. And here's what I say is that I know how to speak when I'm in those spaces. I can speak that language proficiently like I speak the dialect it's like I you have to um but there's always a moment where then I'm like yeah but I'm not white like I and people are going to remind there's also going to be a moment where people are going to remind me you might speak this language the dialect proficiently but um you're not from this country you know you're not like this is not your native and I mean that in a in a more metaphorical way as Mm -hmm. opposed to like and so I think you know I grew up always feeling like just like not quite Ghanaian enough because I don't speak any of my parents like home languages not quite black American enough whatever that might mean in regards to like you know uh, my last name's Yeboa and I grew up in a place where people their last name was not Yeboa also in all these white spaces but I'm not I'm definitely not white (laughs) unless you've got vision issues (laughs) I now can where sometimes felt uncomfortable I now can see it as like such a great gift because it gave me the agency to claim spaces. I am black. I'm a black woman. And so I'm the, I don't check my black, you know, check my black. Oh my gosh, am I black enough? Am I doing it? It's like, no, um, as a Ghanaian American woman who grew up in the South, I am black and I'm also Ghanaian. And I also can straight um, navigate um, any space that I need. I need to navigate without making myself small. So I tend to keep my eye out for the person who may feel like they least belong when they walk into a room. I think a lot of people can relate to that. that yeah. feeling. I was going to say the amount of times even on this podcast, we've talked about feeling the need to code switch and mm-hmm. not being one, not being something enough or not being something enough is such a common experience in this United States of America from, you know, unless you're probably like a white Irish Catholic person from like, I don't know, Connecticut, then you've had that experience. I don't know, the America and the US, we have like this weird amnesia, like almost a cultural amnesia where we forget, oh my gosh, we actually had internment camps. Like, you know, it's not to, and for our, my, you know, my, my Jewish, Italian and Irish friends, they were the last three groups that got to be considered white. There was a time when the US literally ranked people fitness for self-governance when we were not we should all feel a little bit like a foreign existence. That can actually be a beautiful thing. It's just like, like something deep within to be like, what was it like when? Because then I think we'll have a greater grace for yeah. all the folks we choose to otherize. I think it makes you otherize, more empathetic yeah. and understanding and self-aware and 
obviously it's hard to feel like an outsider and that's not always a choice but I do think that the benefits like outweigh the negatives in a way going back to being culturally homeless are like when we try and book people on the podcast and they're like oh I'm not really like that Muslim like I grew up practicing mm-hmm. Islam, but like I don't know that much about it, so I don't know if I'd be a good mm. guest or like I didn't like, know you. That makes religion. you the best guest, exactly. Uh-huh. Yeah. But we Talking run into during, that yeah. a lot. Like, oh, yeah. I think that's really common, and a lot of people also feel like ashamed of their background or their religion or their upbringing, and they're like they just don't want to talk about it. In which we respect yeah. that, but I think it would make for a lot like more like richer conversations and. So can you tell me, maybe even like recently, a time when you felt like you were standing on the outside? I think, I mean, I don't want to speak for both of us, but... Sure. Oh, gosh. I mean, there are a few times, I think, and I talk about this a lot, I guess. So my dad is Italian. My mom is Mm -hmm. Jewish. um, Mm -hmm. And a lot of the times, because of my last name, people don't know that I'm Jewish. Jewish. Mm -hmm. And you'd be surprised at what people say in Mm -hmm. passing to you if they don't know you're Jewish. And, um, you know, I had a boss that would always say really inconsiderate things about Jews when I was listening to his conversation and like it was just not even a thought because he would think for example we had to pitch talent for a project and uh, someone said Jeff Goldblum and my boss at the time said eh no he's too Jewish just little things like that where you don't Mm. you know the other person on the other line does you know doesn't realize what they're saying could be like extremely hurtful i mean again i don't want to get into like the israeli palestinian conflict but but i think uh, there were there was a lot of time in the past couple of months where we had very close friends just outwardly posting israel hate when like i in no way agree with Mm -hmm. what the israeli government is has been Mm -hmm. doing at all i think you people just aren't careful with how they present themselves and what they put out there when they don't know how hurtful it could be to say like Israel doesn't deserve to exist and it's like you don't without even knowing the history or without even doing the research it's just crazy sorry Jessica to cut you yeah (laughs) I think to that point it's also hard because I feel like I don't really know that much about Israel or Palestine I'm an American Mm. person so I feel like I have to have a perspective on that but I've never lived in either of those places I don't Mm -hmm. speak those languages I don't understand the government there and I feel like I need to have like a stance on it or people like look to Mm. me and I'm like I don't know yeah there's that side of it too and then I feel bad that I don't know more I mean, I guess that's one example, but I think you can mm-hmm. also feel other eyes in non-religious or non-cultural contexts mm-hmm. too. Like I'm dealing with some, my dad was recently diagnosed with cancer and we're Whoa. trying to deal with all of the doctors and all of the different care options. And there's all these moving parts. And I, I feel like otherized in that way. Cause I'm like, I don't know anything about mm-hmm. medicine. I don't know anything about health insurance. And like, I keep like trying to call people and have them explain things to me. And like, I keep getting sent to voicemail and I'm like, I wish I was on the inside. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So I think that you can really apply that to a lot of things in life. One, thank you for sharing that. Um, I don't take it lightly that you would share from your kind of personal experiences. But I I mean, I hope that whoever might be listening would recognize that it might help us to all more gracefully and also equitably and just fully, you know, like justice. Think about how, when you're not centered, like what life starts to feel like when you're not, Mm -hmm. like when you, like how you use language, when you just kind of don't think about 
what this might mean for anybody else who, um, you know, mm-hmm. um, because whereas that person might think it was a one-off statement, it's a thing that you now have to internalize. And that thing that you internalize starts to begin to condition the way that you show up in the world and the way that you're conditioned to show up in the world might actually affect the beauty and the quality of your life. This is a very enlightening episode. I want to just like <laughs> bottle everything that you've said and just like make a giant poster on my wall. <laughs> yeah. yeah. To, to switch to like a slightly lighter note. We were oh, yeah, so yeah, curious. Yeah, 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 we yeah. were curious about the church dress code and what you wear every day and what yeah. like what it's like to be a woman in the church. So th- that is it's been an evolution because I do sometimes best. So in my early years I would wear like a robe and then when I got ordained, I could wear a stole kind of looks like the like the draping on my robe. Um, and then like the context in which I began to like um, serve on Sunday mornings, a robe didn't always, didn't always, it was actually more alienating than it was um, like invitational. So then I stopped wearing a robe and then, then it was like, okay, what outfits am I gonna wear? <laughs> and, and I do think people map women's bodies in ministry very differently then they sometimes think about about men in ministry. So like sometimes people will be like, oh, those earrings are too large or we love your shoes. And then I'm like, well, did you listen to anything I actually had to say? Because for the last 20 minutes, I've been saying some pretty, I think, profound things or the kind of terms people use. You're so adorable or, and then you're like, okay, so now I need to feel like I'm a little older. And I remember one time I wore this outfit with like shoulder pads. I, I literally looked like a black little Hillary Clinton. And I was like, this <laughs> is not it like this is i am not this is not my jam like i and i I literally like gave the outfit away so now i mean sometimes i wear like lululemon like no lie all black lululemon outfit yes jeans and a nice top i've decided that when i return to kind of in person we've done some in-person worship services outside but when we return kind of in a more rhythmic way, I'm actually going to start wearing a black, uh, a collar and a black top. If you've ever seen like a clergy wear the black tops and the, the collar. Sure. I have two pairs of jeans that I absolutely love. I'm in a capsule wardrobe, you know, one of those two jeans, one's a pair of black jeans, um, able jeans with some like holes in them. And I'll change up um, either my head wrap and my shoes. I'm like, you know, President Barack Obama. I gotta like, I, <laughs> sometimes I deal with decision fatigue and I think that's gonna be my new my new uniform is like a black top. But yeah, oh, I, I have lived a very colorful life. <laughs> you don't want a tan suit moment like Barack Obama. I remember yeah, he yeah, like yeah, switched yeah, it yeah. up. Oh and, no. And everyone went crazy, yeah. I really do dress how I feel. Sometimes I'll wear a tool skirt and a really cute like tank top or like a t-shirt tied in the back with a tool skirt, you know? I mean, it just all depends. But but I I have found that this pandemic has made me tired and Same. decision fatigue has, is very real for me. I wear a black t-shirt every day that I have a work meeting just to... Yep. Just so no, I don't like when people comment on what I'm wearing. I don't like when people are like, we're matching. Like, okay, I'm going to wear a black t-shirt every day. As you can see, I don't have any work meetings That's today because okay. I'm wearing a butterfly shirt. Butterfly. <laughs> That's right. But I carry a happy somewhere. Yeah, yes, exactly. It's just so much, it's easier, it's simpler, yeah. it's flattering, it's chic, who cares? Yeah, like, yeah, 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 yeah. I feel that. Before we go, we have to talk about it. Jesus, I can't believe we haven't talked yeah. about him yet. Uh, I like him. <laughs> okay, I'm so curious about Jesus because in Judaism, Jesus was basically just like a nice Jewish, a nice Jewish boy. But uh-huh. he's so much more in Christianity. Uh-huh. And uh-huh. I'm wondering, like, can you still be Christian and not have that same relationship with Jesus or feel like Jesus is the Lord or 
What's the what's the skinny on that? So I, I would say that Jesus is kind of like the central, uh, the Christ, Christian, the, is a central kind of like character in that who we are as Christians is very much developed by, um, here, here's a, a line that um, uh, I think it's actually Rob, Rob Bell. Rob Bell says once in one of his videos that was a part of the kind of rabbinic tradition, and that is uh, for disciples, let me be covered in the dust of my rabbi. And so what we would say is that Christians are those who follow Jesus so closely that they are covered in his dust. So like how Jesus ate and how Jesus thought about people, how Jesus took up space in the world, that's how we form our life. I think you could be Christian and maybe really struggle with who Jesus is. I think what makes people distinctly Christian is how you how your life is fashioned in the ways that Jesus's life is fashioned, which then, and I'm gonna add the kicker, should cause us to ask a lot of questions when people who call themselves Christians are out here doing stuff that you're just like, now, huh, who, what, when and where? <laughs> like, how are you? I would say, I wonder how one might be Christian and they're okay with children being caged at the border. Right. I was literally because going to bring Jesus that up. Says, let the children come to me because to these belong the kingdom of heaven. Basically, they, they, the way in which children live is always reminding us of the kingdom. I'm, I'm just, I, make it make sense. Um, mm-hmm. as, one of my, as one of my parishioners always says, the math ain't mathing. And I don't mean that to be like, oh, rah. No, I think, I think people can be Christians and sometimes like struggle with um, like, okay, how does Jesus function? You know, is Jesus this, is Jesus that? Uh, but I think that the, another way of thinking about that is like, if we, if Jesus is kind of at the center of who we are, of how we understand ourselves, then how we show up in the world should be reflective of it. What I have found as a pastor is that people will say, I feel great about Jesus. I don't feel great about the church and I don't feel great about God. Like they, mm-hmm. that's when they're like, kind of like, ah, I just don't know, I don't know. Does it make you angry that Jesus has sometimes become like this scapegoat for, I don't want to say uneducated, but like for some folks to blame Jesus on why they don't do something that is, mm-hmm. you know, typically thought of as otherwise correct. You know, if people say, oh, I'm not getting the vaccine because Jesus wouldn't have gotten the vaccine. Oh, yeah, Jesus stuff like, the vaccine. <laughs> yeah, like yeah. stuff like that, that's like completely incoherent. Like, does yeah. that... It gets me. It really does get me. There are some things we place in, and I'm just going to use general God's hands. There are things we place in God's hands that we just need not place in God's hands. And there are ways that we speak for God that we just really need not speak for God. I mean, I would say this like at funerals, something that gets me at funerals are when people will say, this, I, I know this person would have wanted us to, you know, be happy, be sad, be mad, be glad, be whatever. And it, and it, you can almost feel sometimes there's something really endearing about that. And sometimes there's something that feels a little manipulative about it. Like, definitely. Do we really know if Jimmy would have wanted us to eat cake? I don't know. <laughs> um, but we're saying that. And I think sometimes we do that for for the divine. We start to just place things upon God. Yeah. And, and, and I think especially in this pandemic, there yeah. are things that I've heard that I'm like, the math, <laughs> the math isn't mathing. Yeah, exactly. You know, no, I do know, that, you know, Jesus title. says, love your neighbors. So, so maybe getting vaccinated is actually the way that I love my neighbor. You know, there are a lot of people I don't necessarily agree with their methodologies or the way that they um, understand their theologies or claim faith. I mean, there's some things that are just very, very harmful, very problematic, actually sometimes almost on the, on the, almost close to edging on perverse. Like you're just like, this yeah. is not, and this is why people don't want to come to church. And this is why people are, you know, renounce faith. And and yet sometimes I can, sometimes I can actually look at those folks with a, an ounce of grace because 
I, something in our humanity, we fight so hard to identify with something. And so when people are like, you know, I just, I saw this pastor, he was like screaming at his congregation. He's like, if any of you come in here with a mask on, you know, like that, he was just basically saying like, you don't have faith if you come in here with a mask on. And I was just looking at him thinking, there's something in you that also is broken that needs to be healed. Oh, I, yeah, it just I think oh, it bothers me that sometimes like if you see people will equate all of one sect of Christianity with that, you know, <laughs> borderline unstable preacher crazy. And, mm-hmm. and then be like, oh, you know, relig- religion is the cause of everything. It's like, no, it's not. It's just unfortunately, sometimes uncouth <laughs> leaders uh, yeah. get picked up and go viral and that. I mean, it's a problem. Yeah. There's this woman named Ruby Sales, um, who's just phenomenal. Um, uh, she was a very young civil rights activist and has a tremendous story and is still doing really beautiful activist work. But she, she asked this um, question, you know, where does it hurt? And I think that there are a lot of people in this world who there's a lot that, that um, they cannot point to where it hurts. So like when someone like, shows like road rage, and I'm like, oh, that's a lot of sideways energy. I'm always like, I wonder where it hurts. Mm-hmm. I wonder what what they're what they're dealing with that they just can't they don't want to sit with that thing and now they're going to run me off the road all i'm trying to do is get some chicken sausage like (laughs) (laughs) i will say i have horrible road rage and it comes from the fact that i am an extremely insecure driver and um that's what it is folks i just i freak out i have high anxiety and I'm working on it. That's we're, having a break, we're having a breakthrough moment here. Though, <laughs> yes, <Jason>. we are. <laughs> yeah. I'm too afraid to have road rage because like you never know who's driving the car that you're it's me. in a fight with. Like, <laughs> and I'm going to... People are crazy. I'm going to get out of the car and yell at you. No, I'm going to be on TMZ. Am I going to like totally lose this fight? Anyway. Listen, Lisa, driving in LA is horrendous. I yeah, hope I don't you never have to do yeah. it. Uh, yeah. I Take don't, an Uber. I don't. Yeah, I don't. Take a scooter. Yeah. Take a bike. I don't like. I don't like having to pray, like just to pray myself from one from one location to the next location. Right? Yeah, so, we shouldn't have to waste prayers Lord. on like getting downtown. <laughs> Lisa, this was so wonderful. Thank you so, so fun. much. Oh my gosh! Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. You guys are the best. Thanks for joining us, Lisa. You can follow her on Instagram at petite underscore pastor and Twitter at Lisa Yaboa. If you're a fan of the show, subscribe on Apple Podcasts or listen for free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Don't forget to rate and review us and leave us a comment. If you want to support our show financially, check out our Anchor page and follow us on Instagram at PrayForUsPod. Have a great day or night or week, whatever. Shabbat Shalom. This podcast has been mastered and mixed by the one and only Josh Fisher. Yay, Josh. We love you, Josh. <laughs>